Kids are dismissed. All right. Morning again. It's not often I get to get up twice before you before I get up here. So it's good to see your faces again. Um, this morning we'll be reading through 2 Samuel 6. This is uh, actually one of the the hardest is probably a little, yeah, maybe one of the trickiest passages I've ever had to rely on the Spirit to help me navigate through. Um, and one of the ways I knew this was a tough passage is usually I have um, a set of verses. I'm like, oh, this is where we're going to go. This is the core of it. And the more I read 2 Samuel 6, I was like, no, we got to read all of it. I think even in the reading all of it, we'll still miss some stuff, but we'll try our best. So we're going to start in 2 Samuel um, chapter, uh, verse 1. 2 Samuel 6, 1. David again brought, uh, brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000 in count. He and all his men went to Bala, also known as Kiriath-Jerim, in Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the Ark. They set the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Benadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets or songs, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God, because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah, or break out against Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets." As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. David sounds like a good grandmother. And all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Mahal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Mahal, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over all of the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Mahal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. So this is a fun one. 
One of the, 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 the beauty is, as we've been walking through this series, After God's Own Heart, Lessons from the Life of David, from his relationship with God, we learn that God always looks at the heart. From his relationship and the fight with Goliath, we learn that God prepares us for every battle, that we are never an underdog and God is always on our side. Last week with his friendship with Jonathan, we learned that our friendships can point people to God, but more than that, David and Jonathan is a covenant, a relationship of God with us as well, a picture of all that. Today we are learning that God is worthy of all of our worship through this story of David and the ark coming to Jerusalem. I like to think of this story, and part of the reason we read the whole chapter is it's really a three-act play. The first act is David and Uzzah. The second act is David and Obed-Edom. And the last act, which a lot of people remember, is David and Mohal, daughter of Saul. And in each of these acts, we want to ask ourselves, what do we learn about God and worship? David and Uzzah. First act begins with David now as celebrated as king over all of Israel. Last week when we talked about David, he was on the run. Jonathan was protecting him. While now Jonathan is dead, Saul is dead. David is not only king of Judah, he's king of over all of Israel. David has survived the civil war. He survived fighting against Saul's house. And now he has a united monarchy in Israel, and he's very, very excited. As part of the excitement, David is building up the city of David. In fact, Jerusalem is not the Jerusalem we like to think of. Jerusalem at this point of time is still the city of the Jebusites. David had to conquer Jerusalem and then built it up. In the building up of Jerusalem, David, because he was so in tune with God's heart, recognizes, how can I build up a city for me and God has no place to live? This is very, very interesting because the Ark of the, the Covenant was in the tabernacle, was with them in the wilderness. It was basically a portable temple as the people went through the Exodus. It signified God's presence with them. It signified God's holiness. Now, the Ark itself has a lot of long directions, but basically what it was, was it was a box and it was a chest. It was gold-plated. It had wood in it. It was decorated with cherubim. The sacredness of the, act, the Ark was that God's presence rested there. One of the things that we have to realize as Christians is we're very, very privileged, unlike the people in the Old Testament. We're privileged in that right now you can close your eyes, or if you want to be really, really liberal, you can open your eyes, and you can still talk to the living God. We're very, very privileged, and it's something we don't think a lot about. We've talked about this before. We're very, very privileged. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon people, men and women, for a season, and it left. Your belief in Jesus Christ makes the Holy Spirit now live in you. We're very, very privileged. What they had in the Old Testament was this ark that represented God's presence to them. But I think the beauty of the ark wasn't in its design. It wasn't even in its size. I think God has a sense of humor. In the ancient Near East, the bigger, uh, we never do this in our culture, but the bigger your church was, uh, the, the more important you were, right? The bigger your temple back then was the bigger your God is supposed to be. One of my favorite groups of people in the ancient Near East had a temple that was seven football fields long. I think you really had to love that God because that's a long way to go to get to church. But that's just me. The thing about the ark, though, was that inside the ark laid God's resume. Inside the ark was the tablets from the Ten Commandments. Inside the ark was manna, a bowl of manna. And inside the ark was Aaron's rod. Each of those things reminded the people of who they are and who God is. The tablets and the Ten Commandments remind them that they were chosen by God, called out by God, and asked to live a certain way in covenant relationship with God. The manna reminded them of the days in the desert, yes. The days in the wilderness, yes. But it reminded them that the God who's the God on high provided for their every need every single day. 
And then you had Aaron's rod. If you remember in your Sunday school classes or way back when, Aaron's rod was one of the fun, my, my, my favorite stories, right? When Aaron and Moses go before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, you know, I'm not going to let the people go, God tells Aaron to do what? Throw his rod on the ground, and it turns into a snake. And Aaron's like, whoa, snake. But the Egyptians aren't too impressed. They're like, oh, that's just magic. We can do that too. And if you remember in the story, they do that and they get all their bunch of snakes. And Aaron's rod was controlled by God. So what did it do? It ate up all the little snakes. As a kid, I was like, yeah, my God wins. But there's something else about Aaron's rod that we forget. Aaron was also a Levite. In fact, Levi was the third son of Joseph. The Levites were a special tribe in Israel. When Israel walks into the promised land, they all got promised what? Land, right? Get it? Stay with me. Everyone was promised land in the promised land except the Levites. The Levites were called to be the priests. The Levites were called to be the worshipers, the musician, the people who would lift up the entire Israel and call them back to God consistently. Because of that, everyone's promise was land, but the Levites' job was worship. And part of where the Levites came in with the ark, not every Levite got to carry the ark. Only a certain tribe or a certain family in the Levites got to carry the ark. God went through a painstaking detail to tell the people that I am holy. In fact, the Levites, even the ones who were allowed to watch it, if they were to touch the ark, they would die. So God had rings on the side of the ark and poles that went through, and that's how you carry the ark. Now, why is all that important? See, all of that important is that when we need to understand, before we get to Uzzah dying, one of the things we do as good New Testament Christians is we just throw out the Old Testament. We're like, man, this is why I don't mess with the God of the Old Testament. Like, he just seems violent. Like, this guy just trying to help the ark and he dies. He just seems violent. There's something very, very wrong with that. The first one is Jesus says, I come to represent my father. Everything I do comes to my father. In fact, there is not a miracle Jesus does in the New Testament that the father didn't do in the Old Testament. Jesus raised people from the dead. Guess where he learned that from? The father. Jesus fed people. Guess where he learned that from? The father. Jesus healed people. Guess where he learned that from? The father. Jesus talked about his kingdom. Guess where he learned that from? The father. We need to, first of all, stop separating God because God doesn't want to be separated. The God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. And if you say, well, I like Jesus, but I don't like the Old Testament, you need to take a few steps back and say, God, help me because that's the same God. Second thing that's real, real important with this ark is before you get to Uzzah, you need a little bit more of a background, which you don't get in this chapter. What does that background tell us? The background tells us, yes, the ark was made of gold and it was made of, you know, wood. Yes, it had the tablets in it. It had Aaron's rod. It had the manna. But here's the thing. Israel in these days had fallen away from God. The Levites were supposed to call them to worship. Saul, one of the things that Saul did was neglecting his job as priest to the people and connecting them with God. Israel had fallen apart from God. And in fact, they get into a fight with the Philistines. Perhaps you've heard of them before. These generational enemies. They're in this fight with the Philistines. And someone must have remembered a story their grandmom told them. Because they're like, oh yeah, remember that time we were losing? The ark came down and, and then we won. So they're trying to use the ark as like a good luck charm. This is not what it's supposed to be. This is God's presence among them, and they're trying to use it as a good luck charm. So they're losing the battle, and they get the ark, and they put it down in the battle. And if you remember that story, they lose. But not only do they lose, the Philistines take the ark. So before you get to Uzzah, you have to understand the path that this ark has been just in the books of Samuel. So the Philistines take the ark, and the story we learn from the Philistines, I think, is very, very important is that in, we look at Uzzah and we're like, well, God just seems violent. It happens so quickly. But when you look at the whole story in 1 Samuel, you realize that God is merciful. 
The Philistines didn't know God's law. They didn't know God's rules. And here's the thing we need to realize is that those of us who know God's law, those of us who know what God's called us to do, he holds us more accountable. God is going to show grace to the Philistines because they don't worship him. They don't bow down to him. They don't even know him as Savior. But those of us who know what God's calling us to do, he holds us more accountable. So the Philistines are celebrating their great victory. They take the ark and, and they put them in their temple to celebrate to their god Dagon, which we believe was half man, half fish. I don't know how a half man, half fish comes in wood form, but that's what they did, right? Um, you might think that's funny, but I bet they would think some of our idols are funny. So they put the ark in front of Dagon, and they're celebrating this great thing. They go to sleep, and they wake up the next morning. This is one of my other favorite stories in the Bible. They wake up the next morning, and their God has his head chopped off. His body is bowing before the ark. And then for good measure, the arms and legs are chopped off. Now you would think this would be enough for them to be like, you know what? We won the battle. We should probably give this little gift back to the Israelites. But they're stubborn. And God is still merciful. So the next thing they do is like, we're just going to hold on to it for a little while. So they take it to a city called Ashdod. And in Ashdod, after you have this bow in Dagon, the people are struck with tumors. And then they start to die. And when they start to die, they're like, oh, maybe this is an emergency. We should get it out. Now, most of us would be like, I think it's time to return it to Israel. Not the Philistines. They're like, you know what, Ashdod, maybe that's not the place for you. They send it to Gath. Does that sound familiar? Gath is the home of? Goliath, yes. First service was two. Now we're four. Doing great. We're doubling up each service, you know? So they get to Gath, and Gath is the same thing. They're celebrating the great victory of their God. And, and, and guess what happens there? The people get tumors, and they start dying, right? So then finally they're like, you know what? We need to get this thing out. So instead of, again, sending it to Israel, they send it to a third place called Ekron. Ekron's my favorite Philistines because they're the smart ones. They're finally like, you know what? Dagon bowed down, arms chopped off, heads chopped off. You got tumors, you got boils, you're dying, you're dying. We're good. We're good. Why don't you just keep moving this thing along? We're good. So Ekron is the no thanks people. So they come up with this idea. They get all the Philistine kings together, and they put the, ox, they put the ark on an ox cart, and they were up on the hill. So this is brilliant, right? They're like, we're not going to touch this thing. We'll put it on there, and we'll just shove it down the hill, and eventually it'll land somewhere across the border in Israel, and we're good. But then they also, like we tend to do, is they felt a little bit guilty about, you know, like being disobedient, and they wanted to thank Israel. It's like the thanks, but no thanks. Like, here you go, guys, have fun. So they actually give them gifts, and they put guilt offerings in the ark. They toss it down. So what do we learn from all this? We learn that maybe God is not as sudden and violent as we think. That for people who don't know God's law, God's willing to extend them grace. Does this sound like Jesus a little bit? Remember that parable that Jesus talks about the people? And, and you know, some of us are like, well, what about the people who get saved at the very, very end? Well, God's going to give them grace, and that's okay. And if you got the grace now, God's going to hold you accountable for what you need to know now. But for people who don't know, God gives them grace. But people who do know, God holds accountable. So the ark goes down a hill and it lands in the field of a guy named Joshua. Joshua is in this city called Beth Shemesh. Beth Shemesh were, as the name sounds, Jewish, house of Shemesh. They were also, because they were Jewish, they were Israelites. Because they're Israelites, they're in covenant with God. Because they're in covenant with God, guess what? They knew the rules. Don't touch the ark. Only the Levites touch the ark. Don't even mess with the ark. And because they were on the border of the Philistines, they would have heard what happened in Gath. They would have heard what happened in Ashdod. They would have heard what happened in Ekron. They would have heard all these things. But guess what they do? They get curious. They're like, oh my gosh, the ark is here. Let's celebrate. Let's dance. Let's dance. And it's great. But then they go and they say, we need to see what's inside. They open up the ark. And guess what happens? They die. 
They die instantly. The people who open up the ark die. Now you're just like, well, how come Philistines get grace? Again, for people who don't know God's law, he will keep giving them grace until they come into the family. But if you know God's law, he will always hold you more reliable. The people of Beth Shemesh should have known different. They should have known the law of God. They should have known what God told them to do. And most of all, they should have been smarter to realize that if it's killing people there, we should probably leave it alone. And all of this happens before we get to the ark being housed at Kiriath Jerim in Uzzah's house. Uzzah's dad was Abinadab after Beth Shemesh. They actually got smart. They called up a Levite. And instead of setting up a temple, they put it in this guy Abinadab's house. Now, who is Uzzah? Uzzah, who we read about in, in 2 Samuel 6, is a, some people think he was a priest. Some people think he wasn't. You can figure it out. Uzzah, what we do know, grew up with the ark in his house. So again, you're acting to the level of knowledge here. This is not a random person who's serving God and saying, I will take the ark because David commanded me. Now, we're going to pick on David a lot in the next three, four weeks. Um, one of the things that David does that's really, really terrible for, for anyone in power is he uses his power for his own advantage. And he does that consistently. And it's reminded to us that you can be after God's own heart and still do messed up stuff. You can be after God's own heart and still sin greatly against your sisters and against your brother. You can be after God's own heart and still do evil, even, I would say. So David here is going to, to celebrate, and he's having this big thing. But here's what Uzzah should have known. He should have known the stories of Ashdod, of Ekron. He should have known the stories of Gath. He should have known what happened at Beth Shemesh. It wasn't just, oh, I'm serving God, I'm taking this ark. It's ignoring what has happened in story, ignoring God's law, and then purposely trying to help God out. Because here's the thing that Uzzah forgets, and it's the same thing Samuel said to Saul. What was that? To obey is better than sacrifice. Israel didn't get it, so God sent another prophet named Isaiah, and guess what Isaiah told him? To obey is better than sacrifice. And Israel still didn't hear it, so God sent another prophet named Hosea, and guess what Hosea told him? To obey is better than sacrifice. So what do we learn from Uzzah? We learn that your good intentions don't matter as much as obedience to God. Your good intentions don't matter as much as obedience to God. Because here's the thing, if I have good intentions that are apart from God, I am making myself the decider of what is good. I'm taking the place of God and making myself God. Some might call that idolatry. God calls that sin. And God thinks that's worthy of death because he's the Lord, not you. So that's why your good intentions don't matter. Not because you're not good, but because in essence, if your good intentions are apart from what God's called you to do, what God's commanded to you, how can they be good if they're in disobedience to God? The first lesson from worship that we learn in this passage is worship is obedience to God. Uzzah falls down, not because God is violent and not merciful, but because he's consistently disobedient to God. The second lesson we learned here is David and this man named Obed-Edom. Obed-Edom is one of my favorite new people I've discovered in the scripture. He housed the ark for three months. After Uzzah dies, he housed it for three months. And for three months, Obed-Edom's house is blessed by God. And you're reading through this, and everyone's just like, yeah, it was great. Obed-Edom's best, and maybe David's a little bit jealous. That's why he goes and gets the ark. But they missed something very, very significant. In our passage, we call Obed-Edom a Gittite. The Gittites were Philistines. So my cynical mind thinks that David actually sat there. He saw Uzzah dying on the floor by the ark. And he goes, you know what? 
God gave grace to the Philistines. Let's see who near here is a Philistine that can at least house this thing for a little bit. And David takes the ark. He gets a Levite. They drop in Obed-Edom's house. And in that three months, there's nothing else in Scripture that says besides the Spirit of God coming upon David that David received a formal education. Samuel is now dead. David, you can make an argument, probably didn't know all the intricacies of moving the ark. So in that three months' time, David learns a little something. The proof of this is there's a companion passage that it goes in 1 Chronicles 15 that talks this all through. But here's what I want you to remember about Obed-Edom and worship. If Obed-Edom is a Philistine, if Obed-Edom is a Gittite, that means he's an outsider to Israel. But here's the beauty of our God, is that even in the Old Testament, it's not your blood, it's not your hereditary genes, it's faith that gives you access to the kingdom of God. When we think of the nation of Israel, we think of it as this Jewish people. No, it's a group of faith. Uriah was a Hittite. Remember him? We'll learn about him a little bit. Obed-Edom is a Gittite. These are all different people groups, and they have access to God because of faith. That's what we learn about Obed-Edom, is that you can be outside the kingdom, but God has a plan for you. That you cannot be born into the kingdom, but God will save you and use you and bless you. And I think all of us in this room who don't have Jewish descent need to celebrate people like Obed-Edom because praise God that we who are outside have now been brought in. And that's the story of Obed-Edom, that worship is God making a place for everyone. That worship is God making a place for you. That worship is God saying, I will bless you if you have faith in me. That's what worship is. So Obed-Edom is this outsider, but God reveals himself to him. That should give you hope. Obed-Edom is this outsider, but God blesses him and says, you know what? Just like the Levites who I chose for this task, Obed-Edom, I'll choose you for this task. And God blesses them. Then it brings us to, I think, Probably what needs the most nuance in this story, and that's David and Mahal. Now, a lot of us read this story, and we do the quick thing. You know, we look at it, we're like, oh, my gosh, David's just dancing and praising the Lord, and, and how dare her look down upon him. This is one of those stories where it's easy to hop on our soapbox, right? It's just like, at least I'm not him. You know, we even have that song, I Would Be More Undignified Than This. When I was in youth group growing up, people would just dance, and I was just like, they would dance up and down. I was like, I guess that's... David celebrating, you know? It was just that that was your cue in youth group. It says more undignified than this. I think we missed this story. And the reason I think we missed this story is because if it's too simple to you and it just makes perfect sense, then you're missing all the different nuances here. So if you just look at this story and be like, well, David's praising God and Mahal's not, and that's why she doesn't have children. It's like, what? How, did, how does that even connect? So let's find out who Mahal is. The first one is in 1 Chronicles 15, after Uzzah dies, David is told by the Levites, hey, um, you guys got land? We get the ark. <laughs> you know, you guys got all these blessings where the priests, we're the ones who to bring it into the city. And David's like, oh, well, that's wonderful. And I'm actually convinced that 1 Chronicles 15 was written by a Levite. And my proof is whoever wrote that is just giving shout outs to all his people. Now, usually when you have shout outs in the Bible, it's genealogy. It's like, birthed him, birthed him, birthed him, birthed him, birthed him. Not this one. This one's like, well, there's Hank. Hank likes to talk. There's Esty. Esty likes to dance. You know, it's just naming all these random people. I think the Levites were finally like, y'all been ignoring us for a couple decades now. God chose us to do this. We will celebrate. Every Levite I can tell is going in the book, right? David's calling all of us together. We're all going to celebrate. But here's what's happening. David makes the place for the ark. David learns about the Levite decree, and then he makes a new law. This is the thing I love about God's law. We feel ourselves. David's like, hey, guys, I got a 
new law. No one except the Levites can touch the ark. And people are like, well, that sounds good. The next thing he does is he assembles all of Israel. And then he's dancing as he comes in. It's this great big celebration, but I think we're missing something. And this is what we're missing. I think we're missing the human element of it all. What I mean by this is what do we know about Mahal? Mahal was one of Saul's two daughters. Mahal had an older sister, Merab. David, when he was a young boy and he killed Goliath, part of the deal of killing Goliath was what? You would marry the king's daughter. Saul, and something David learned a little too well from Saul, is using women all the time. And one of the things that Saul does is he offers Merab to David, and as soon as David kills Goliath, he's like, well, you know, I mean, like, like Merab, you should marry someone else. And then, while David is going through this battle with Goliath, Goliath, Mahal shows up, and she falls in love with him. This is her first love. She loves David. And this is what we forget about this passage, which is like, oh my gosh, she despises David. You have to learn the whole story behind it. She loves David. She loves David so much. You know the proof of her loving David? Last week when we talked about the six times Saul tried to kill David. One of the times is he sent a death squad to David's room. And you know what Mahal did? She literally lied to the death squad, lied to her father so David could escape. There's a nuance needed in the story that we keep missing. She loved David very, very much. So what happens that we get to the end of the story? That's just the first part. Now, when you take a step back, you have to realize her father is Saul. He's using her to, to basically try to hurt David, and he's using her as like, like a, not a person, but really like a token, like a possession, and she's still loyal to David. What happens after David escapes Saul? You know, Pastor Linda's going to take us through Ziklag and the, the wilderness next week. So I was still thunder. But you know what I can tell you for sure that happened when David was away? Here's a woman who stood up to her father. Here's a woman who stood up to conventional wisdom. Here's a woman who put her life on the line, her, her title on the line, herself on the line. And David repays her by marrying Abigail, by marrying other women. Like that's how she gets repaid for her loyalty and her love for David. We need a little bit of nuance before we get to this end of the story. When David comes back, Saul, because he uses women like David learned to do, has married her off to a second husband. David, in, David becomes a skilled politician somewhere along the way, right? And David becomes a skilled politician, and here's how we know this. So Mahal's married now to a guy named Palti. David has Abigail and other wives. When David comes back, instead of David saying, you know, I guess polygamy is cool now, come back, Mahal, David says to her brother, who's now the king over Israel, while he's ruling in Judah, he says, hey, um, Ishbosheth, I got something to tell you. Mahal legally belongs to me. She's married to me. I need you to return her to me. David approaches his relationship now with Mahal like a business transaction. And you know how we know the difference? Her second husband, his name is Palti, he follows her all the way back to David, weeping and mourning for his wife who's leaving. And David just brings her back like she's a transaction. So you can understand if she's put her life on the line for David, if she sacrificed her family for David, if she married another man to keep David safe. You can understand how when she's sitting up in the palace and he's out there dancing like a fool, she might have some feelings about it. You can understand that a little bit, can't you? But here's the other thing we need to remember about this passage. Now, my wife and I don't fight. We're blessed. I know I, but I hear some couples fight. Now, imagine if you are one of those couples that fight, you know, imagine your worst fight ever. Imagine your worst fight ever. And then imagine the little chronicler just sitting there writing notes. And then it gets to be in scripture. 
And then you get to be in thousands of years, and people look at Mahal and they're just like, well, she just is undignified. She's just bitter. But maybe there's a reason she's bitter. Maybe there's a reason she's been hurt by David and she can't worship because she's so hurt. And one of the lessons we learned from Mahal is not that, oh, she despised David, he needs to be free to dance. That's the end of the story. The first lesson we need to learn from Mahal is this, hurt people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. Mahal is not able to worship God or even celebrate the ark being back because all she is is in her feelings. All she is is in her pain. All she is is remembering, I sacrificed for you. I put my life on the line for you. I married another man for you. And now you're celebrating and you've forgotten about me. Hurt people hurt people. And what we need to think about this is when people are hurt, without healing, worship is hard. It's hard to worship when you're in pain. It's hard to worship when the person who caused you your pain is standing in front of you, worshiping all free. It's hard to worship when you're in pain. So maybe Mahal is not just bitter at God and bitter at David. Maybe that's her pain speaking. Maybe we need to give her a little grace like God gives us a little grace. Maybe we need to give our sister a little grace and say, we hear your pain. Because here's the thing, hurt people hurt people, and without healing they can't worship. And if they can't worship, they enter into prisons themselves. So what do we learn from Mahal this morning? We learn that, yes, worship is obedience to God. That, yes, worship is God making a place for you, whether it's to be a Levite priest or Obed-Edom, the outsider, or, you know, someone who's thousands of years later following his son Jesus. Yes, worship is all those things. But worship must also be us recognizing that sometimes when our sisters and our brothers are in pain because of what we've done, they can't see God. They can't worship God. They can't come freely before God. So, yes, celebrate your freedom in Christ, but don't celebrate it at the expense of your sister and brother. If there's someone you've hurt, if there's someone you pain, it is your job to make it right with them. It is your work and your witness to make it right with them. Because if you're not willing to help healing, if you're not willing to go to God and ask for forgiveness, that person will never worship God. And here's the worst part about it all is if you're not willing to help heal your sisters and brothers from the hurt that you've caused and they can't worship God, in theory, no, in reality, you're helping them to not be able to worship God. You're keeping them from God yourself. And in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, that's worthy of death. That's worthy of death. And I'm not just talking about the physical death because in the Bible, when it talks about death, there's physical, there's spiritual, and there's emotional and I'm not saying if you, give, you keep hurting people, you know, you're going to die. But I'm saying you're going to kill your relationships. I'm just saying you're going to kill your witness. You're going to kill their relationship with God. You're going to be more like Uzzah and less like Jesus. We all want to dance like David. But let us also recognize that worship is us being intentional of asking forgiveness. That worship is us being intentional of knowing our sisters and brothers are in pain. And if we cause that pain, we need to ask for forgiveness. So maybe this morning, this story isn't just about the ark and dancing freely. Maybe it's about thinking about who's the mahal in your life. Who do you need to free from that pain that they're in? 
Who do you need to ask forgiveness from? Who do you need to say, I'm sorry that I've kept you from worshiping God. I'm sorry that my witness has hurt your relationship with God. Because to me, that is true worship. Before you can dance, remember, we're not free till we're all free. Jesus didn't just come for me. He came for all of us. So if we want to dance like David, we must be in the healing business of our relationships with reconciliation. Amen? We're going to close our worship now with a song called Great Are You, Lord. I'd like to invite up Pastor Esty and the worship team. As we sing this song, may you be reminded of all these lessons we learn here. That worship is being obedient to God. That's the first thing to hold on to. That worship is celebrating and God has made room for you. That's beautiful. That worship is being set free. That yes, worship though is only made possible if we're reconcilers and healing the brokenness. Because we want more David's dancing, not Mahal's who are in pain. We want to be people who bring healing to our relationships, healing to the world around us. And if we want truly want worship to be the breath in our lungs, the praise in our voices, the foundation of our life, if we want worship, the God who's great, we got to love our sisters and brothers who we see. And we got to love them by healing them. And we got to heal them by asking my forgiveness. Because if we ask for forgiveness, I promise you, you leave the prison behind, but you break the doors of the prison for them. And you can all dance like David danced if we're all free. But we got to do the work. Amen? Let's stand and sing together. I'd like to also invite up the intercessors. We'd love to pray for you for anything you got going on. Maybe you need forgiveness for the hurt you brought. Maybe you need God to pry open those prison doors. Whatever you need, please come up. We'd love to pray for you. I'd like to invite up any staff as well to stay up here. We would love to pray for you for anything. But as we sing this song, let worship be obedience. Let worship be making a space at the table. But let worship be not only you being free, but your sisters and brothers being free. Amen.